right, well, I'm sitting here with Andrew Kastner, founder and head brewer of Mashcraft Brewing. Thanks for doing this, man. I greatly appreciate it. No problem. As we always start, got to cheers. Start it up, man. Absolutely. Thanks for doing this. How no are you? No problem. I'm well, 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 well. We've, uh, we've come through uh, what has been a tumultuous 2020 and um, come out the other side. The spring has definitely sprung and uh, energy levels are high. So I think uh, I think it's going to be a great 2021 for us and other craft groups. Fantastic, man. Well, that's, that's usually one of my jump off points that I love starting any conversation with is everyone has a unique origin story. Yeah. So I'd love to kind of get your perspective on the origins of Mashcraft. Well, um, I guess I would be initially the origins. Um, I graduated from IU with a completely separate degree and uh, ended up starting a different business when I moved back here to India, where I'm from. And from that, ended up moving in an apartment down the street from Oak and Barrel Brewing Company and uh, got a, a side gig there while I was starting my, um, my other production company. And then... Um, about two months into that side gig, uh, one of the brewers is out at the host stand before a lunch shift about talking about he just fired a guy. And I was always inquisitive. I was always curious about what was going on. Uh, and I drank beer at the time and, um, and uh, was uh, curious how it was made. So went to him later that day and said, um, hey, can you, you know, can you give me a chance? I'll, I don't need a career. I'm, you know, I'm just looking for a shift or two a week. I just want to learn how this is done. He said, okay. And then it went off from there. You know, we're now 16 years later and... Um, I found myself uh, shortly after that reading a bunch of brewing books and tackling a whole bunch of stuff there, started writing business plans, um, ended up uh, the assistant working with a, another guy at Oak and Barrel, got the head brewer job after uh, Dave Colt, another person at the Ram um, restaurant and brewery where we ran two locations and was moonlighting then, writing business plans and happened to meet the right finance guy at the right time, uh, showed him a business plan. He said, well, this is ink on paper, but we need to probably start over. <laughs> uh, so we did, and um, and he gave me some great direction, and he uh, he was the main investor initially. About a year into Mashcraft, we uh, we brought on a, a third investor who helped us do location two and location three downtown and up in Fishers, and also brought a, a really good energy level after we finished our first build out. He was able to sustain the next two, so uh, that was great. The whole idea behind Mashcraft was, um, can we create a place where the community can gather? and also put out a diverse selection of beer. One of the things that the two places I worked at before weren't doing very well is they were house beer driven. They yeah. were six house beers and then maybe the brewer got to play on one or two taps. And um, that always bugged me. Um, so when I looked at the way that I liked to go to breweries and, and, and sample and experiment, and when I was like uh, projecting out, I was like, I'm not the only person that feels this way. So we designed Mashcraft around initially it was three house beers, gold, red, and IPA. Uh, and then everything else, the other 13 taps was going to rotate. Mm. Everything was going to change constantly because I saw an energy level way before un untapped where people wanted to go somewhere and get something new consistently. And um, that ended up manifesting itself in actually happening. So that was, uh, that was nice if that worked out. Otherwise, that would have been pretty embarrassing. <laughs> well, that's great, man, because uh, I remember reading – an article uh, that you had and you, I love people that think abundantly, man. Mm -hmm. It's, it's one of my favorite things in people, the people that don't have a scarcity mindset, but think abundantly and mm -hmm. always want to kind of grow. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading a quote that you said, just show me something cool every day. <laughs> yeah. Just yep. show me something cool every day. It's yep. just, it's that it's a growth mindset. What, what, what was behind that? What gives you that drive to um, think well, that way? You know, I, I kind of, we talked off air before this about, the way that you know I generally like to work, and it kind of um, 
can be sporadic in the fact that I don't like to be in the same place all the time. I don't like to do the same thing repeatedly, which is why brewing was so appealing. Because yes, in the beginning, um, it's very one side of the brain, manual labor, you're learning uh, how to do physical things. Yeah. But once you get in, and I was lucky in that I was, I was learning in a major growth phase of craft beer, so progression happened quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you went from a seller person to assistant brewer to a head brewer. I mean, many people did it faster than I did. Um, but I was gone from not knowing anything, even on the homebrewing level, to being a head brewer in three and a half years, which in many trades is just unheard of. Sure. In the, the three to four years after that, uh, people were doing it in one year, and which was unsafe, um, <laughs> business-wise and physically. Um, but they were doing it that quickly because they just needed bodies in these breweries. Um, but when you progress that quickly, you go from that, I'm using the physical side of my brain to I'm combining science and art. Cause really when it comes down to recipe formulation, you're trying to do that art thing. Uh, and being able to use all those different sides of the brain is the, that equivalent. Show me something cool every day. And that is what brewing can be if you're doing it correctly and you're focused and not just drunk all the time. Um, <laughs> You know that like midday beer. Yeah, um, for sure. But, uh, but no, show me something cool every day. And that's not just business. I mean, that's personal too. Like I'm not the kind of person who eats at the same restaurant every day. I'm not the kind of person who drinks the same beer every day. Um, again, you know, 13 beers that rotate. Um, we want to be able to keep things constantly moving, keep them entertaining. And uh, the whole shiny object kind of thing to be able to uh, kind of keep things interesting. That's great, man. I think, um, you know, Hallmark, a hallmark of craft brew is creativity. For sure. And there's no better place to find that than in the names of the beer. You mentioned you got your staples and you rotate 13 different ones. Mm-hmm. What is you guys' process for coming up with the names of beer? Because I find it's there's always a fun and unique story. Behind yeah. That. So we actually did the the opposite of that starting out. We, were, we came in and uh, we opened our first location in Greenwood in 2014. And at that time, uh, there was starting to be some stories pop up of cease and desist orders. Because that... To call that, to call 2014 saturated now is kind of funny uh, because we're three times the breweries we were then, but we were getting kind of saturated. There was like people starting to step on other people's toes, whether it's in the neighborhood or whether it's across the country, Mm -hmm. we start seeing lawyer things flying across the country in the mail. And uh, Sun King had a couple famous stories early on of uh, some things that they named and and kind of poked poked the bear a bit uh, back at some some larger breweries. Uh, But that was starting to become a thing. And so we were like, well... We don't want to create a brand because originally we were going to be Crossroads Brewing Company. Okay. There was a small brew pub in Ithaca, New York that had already had that. We're like, you know what? Odds of this being a problem are slim, but we don't want to try to start a new business and have to reinvent ourselves six months in. So we went back to the drawing board on the name. So glad we did. Mashcraft is so much more unique. Tells everybody what we're doing um, and was able to build some good imagery around. But... um, so when we got to naming the beers for that same principles of we don't want to infringe on anything, we took our first three house beers and made it gold. You can't sue us for that. Red, <laughs> it's a style. You can't sue us for that. Well, and red IPA, is my favorite, yeah. And IPA, you can't sue us for that. Um, and then uh, that was before Untapped, so we couldn't really search easily. The trademark website's all right, but it's not bulletproof. Yeah. So we wanted to make sure that if we're going to put this much money and this much time into developing these brands that are going to be around for what we hope is – 20, 30 plus years, we don't want to have to jumpstart again six months in. So yeah, we went opposite names. And then when we started getting our seasonals, the stuff that may or may not come back, then we just got a little willy-nilly. For us now, our process is very team-oriented. I'm constantly asking the brewers, um, our salesperson, 
I'm asking managers. I'll be standing at a location saying, hey, in a week we got this coming out. You guys got any ideas? And even customers. Customers have named our beers before. And, you know, the criteria really comes down to is it going to pop off the page? If we name something, is somebody going to go, that's a good beer name? Uh, and then the other thing is, is it going to kind of describe what the beer is going to taste like? Mm. That's, not a, that's not an always rule. That's more of a sometimes rule. Sometimes we just do something silly. But can somebody read the name and say, I know what to expect? Because one of the things I've learned in business and in personal, the, the key to any successful relationship is setting expectations early um, and making sure they're accurate. And then, over, then coming over the top of them and meeting them and exceeding those expectations. Um, and that goes down to as simple as a beer name on a menu. If you name it something, name something, smoke something, but it's not a smoke beer, then that's going to create not a huge problem, but it's just enough to create that little bit in somebody's mind that's a disconnect. And what we want, don't want here is any, uh, any guess what this means. Gotcha. Now, everyone's got kind of their unique story on how their palate manifested to enjoy craft beer. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was in college, it was what light beer is, is available, and let's just do that. Natural light, or, Keystone light. Yeah, you know, Bush light or Natty light, you can get a case for twelve ninety nine at Catch and Carry yep, back, 30 in, packs. back in my Gainesville days, University of Florida. You boys know what I'm talking about. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, what was that first beer that kind of hooked you and it said, you know, this is going to be a bigger part of my life. It's craft uh, well, scene. The answer is twofold. Um, one of them is macro and one of them is micro. So I went to IU. So I was in Bloomington. Upland's now, I think, approaching 30 years. Uh, so they were already a big deal by the time I was yeah. in school. Um, and uh, so we'd hang out at the pub. Uh, and there, I generally pretty much only drank their wheat. They did put out, and that, that was actually when to answer your question, my gateway into small craft was Upland wheat. And uh, they actually, I don't know if they still make it anymore, but one time a year, they would make a red beer with their wheat yeast, and they called it just Vison. And huh. it was the one that combined more flavor than I tasted at that point in any other beer because it brought maltiness in there. It brought yeast-derived elements in there, and it was kind of like one of those blow-your-minds of how much beer can have flavor coming from the same bush light, natural light, keystone light, <laughs> high school and early yeah, college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but other than that, when I first started going to a liquor store, legally and illegally, um, I, I didn't, outside of the party scene, didn't really enjoy those light beers all that much. I did really get into Killian's when I could mm. afford it, and um, Amberbach when I could afford it. Uh, those were ones that really stood out, and Honey Brown. Honey Brown. Oh, uh, yeah, Honey Those Brown. are the ones that like brought flavor to the experience, Higher ABV. I wasn't drinking something three point six percent alcohol. Kind of made it. Uh, kind of made me work for work my life. Gotcha. Because yeah, Honey Brown led to me down a Newcastle path. Yeah. Which my joy of that beer led to additional pounds on the waistline. Which is <laughs> yeah. when you're in college, there's you know, there's yeah. there's something to that freshman twenty. So you know? <laughs> yeah. The, uh, so the um, uh, the funniest part about that is I kept that only kind of light and malty beer thing all the way till the time I was a brewer. And that, would, that put me in my mid-20s. It was actually Oak and Barrel Brewing Company, which was my first job as a brewer, that broadened my horizon. Like, I remember sitting down. When you get hired there, you sit down to a flight of uh, six beers, uh, and and they describe them all to you, and you're supposed to get to know them. And I couldn't drink anything except for their amber and their uh, their uh, wheat, which was um, alabaster. Gotcha. Couldn't touch any of them. And then from there, it just takes off. You go down the down the road of craft beer and you end up with poppy and imperial stouts and sours and all that stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, that definitely for me took a long time. Well, I think, um, you know, obviously you guys got multiple locations. Um, you work, you've, you worked at a couple of 
breweries in and around Indianapolis and Indiana in general, is there any that you draw inspiration from? And if so, are there any in particular and why? Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't pay a lot of attention. Um, outside of uh, a couple of local ones I really like, um, and um, you look at your, your daredevils who make high-quality products, you look at Bare Hands, um, who makes one of the best IPAs in the state. Um, love love visiting the Sun King location downtown. Thirty mm-hmm. different taps, and Andrew Hood's doing cool stuff on the on the wood side, and they got stuff coming out of the small batch brewery. So I enjoy being able to, to taste their stuff as well. Uh, there's um, those are the ones that like I kind of when I'm going around. That's the pints I enjoy. As far as inspiration, like I, I've you know I've, I've paid attention to you know especially early when they were the big big guys on the block. You, know, you look at your founders and you look at your Russian rivers and Allagash mm. and stuff like that. And you just see, you kind of marvel at what they're able to do um, with the width of their sales um, uh, geography. And they're able to be relevant in multiple different areas. They're able to produce a bunch of different styles and be able to do it at a high quality level. And that's where I think if there's a derivative that's come down to, to what we're doing now, uh, we've developed in the, in the back of the house side of things with the brewers is, we talk about consistently great variety. Those breweries are doing that. They're mm-hmm. making beers consistently, consistently great. And they're doing a wide variety consistently great. And that's where I think if there's anything that's kind of rubbed off, that's really what it would have been. As far as like what's going on in the overall beer scene, I really rely on the younger people to do that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my, my main brewer down in Greenwood is, is, um, is uh, five years younger than me and really into the craft beer scene. Um, I'm, I'm kind of turning into an old curmudgeon um, <laughs> when it comes to craft beer. Some of the new trends I, I just don't enjoy, so that that yeah. kind of pushes me off a lot. Uh, but uh, but they usually do a good job of keeping our brand exciting by bringing these ideas to the mm. table. The stuff that I just honestly don't care to research. Um, and um, like other people who follow a bunch of people on Instagram, I'm like, yeah, mm. yeah. But they, I, our team, whether it's the front of house staff or whether it's our other brewers bring a lot of really good ideas and then they hand them to me and then it's my job to try to execute them. Gotcha. Because yeah, I'm yeah. the guy who actually can take this picture on Instagram and I can turn it into something. But. Yeah, because you see this, This you mentioned trends, right? And there's there's so many, and I like to think of a lot of you guys as kind of mad scientists and tinkering with stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing sours and mm-hmm. all these different flavors there. But on that note is, obviously you got 13 that you rotate your staples, coming from a brewing background yourself. Those are obviously your successes. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> what? Give me something around maybe a trend that you saw that were like, maybe we should try that, or maybe there's a blend I'm tinkering with. It, it, it sounded good. It looked good. But when it came out, it was just like, missed the mark, dead bacon. on arrival. Bacon beer is the worst thing that I've ever made in my life. Oh, you're talking about two of my favorite loves, it man. awful. It was awful. And I had a couple people locally who said how they did it. And with mixed success from those people. But I was like, man, got to try that. And it was just disgusting. You can't, <laughs> you can't get the fat off of it. Uh, so you end up with a, a beer with like fat. So they're like, yeah, you know, these people were like, you got to render the fat. And you got to really just dry it out. I'm like, okay, well, I tried that. It's still fatty. So, yeah, yeah. we haven't done that one before. Um, other failures, there's been numerous on the beer side. The nice thing about our setup is we have three different brew houses. Um, two, two different brew houses, three different fermentation facilities that are different sizes. So when we want to experiment with something, we can make it at Fishers, and we have a third of the of the yield that will be at Greenwood. Mm. So our failures can be mitigated that way. 
Now, previously, when I go back before we opened Fishers, I looked at a lot of styles of beer that I was really excited to make, and they were generally old styles, like mm. things like Alt Beer and California Common and Dunkel. These are styles that people have been making for hundreds of years, and as a, a passionate brewer, I wanted to be able to perfect them, be able to make them. And, and honestly, it's kind of the way I drink the simpler styles that are still full of flavor. I wanted to make them and drink them. Nobody else cared. Yeah. Nobody else cared about that. Even back then when we didn't have the New England craze and the sour craze and all that stuff, people still wanted more IPAs and more stouts and stuff like that. So that was one of the things early in Mashcraft that if I had to go back and redo, uh, along with a bunch of things, but if I had to go back and redo that, I would have probably tried to have been more on the edge in 14, 15, even a little 16, and made some stuff that people were really clamoring for instead of necessarily making what I thought was our business model, which was, I'm going to make what I want to make, and then the, the audience that likes that will come here. With our with our very tight geographic setup as, as then one brew pub and now three, we're really, really talking about a, a small radius. There's just not that many people who are passionate about those styles in that small radius, so really have to cast a wider net. Gotcha. So you mentioned, you know, three locations and you guys have done that in a relatively short period of time. You know, growth can be exactly. fickle. It can be fickle, right? <laughs> There's, it can, it can, but it, uh, it, as I was talking with, with Dave at, at Sun King, you know, growth means a lot of different things to us, mm-hmm. but managing it yeah. is sometimes the most tricky thing as far as being a business owner. Oh, yeah. With three locations, how, how did that come about? How do you guys manage your growth where it hasn't gotten you over your skis, more or less? Um, well, I can guarantee you there was 100 instances where we were over our skis. The, yeah. the key there is to, um, is to be the duck on the water. Everything above it looks really good. Mm-hmm. It's under the water where things are just ridiculously hectic. And um, you can talk to um, some people who still do and, and some people who, who used to work with us that we that we still love and they can talk about what uh, 2015, 2016, and what 2017 looked like. I mean, it was complete chaos. Not only were we in major expansion mode where, where every owner was just um, intently involved every day trying to create something new, but everything that we did, even after Fishers opened in January 2018, there was another nine, 10 months of just establishing new processes. Mm. And that's one of the things that actually wears on you and your team the most is generally you want to show up to work and know what to expect. You want to know what the day's got in store. You want to mentally prepare for that. You want to execute it, feel satisfaction, and then walk away. We weren't able to do that for three years. Mm. It was rare when we were able to plan a day and execute it that same way just because there were so many moving targets combined with heavy needs. And you just had, somebody was constantly talking to you about something that has to happen yesterday. And, and literally we were, we were putting out fires all around us constantly. That's one of the nice things starting in 2019 that we did really well pre-pandemic was after getting through that Fisher's growth, we really started saying, all right, what do we need to button down? What do we need to tighten up? And we looked at all the business aspects specifically every dollar going out the door and we started tightening things one at a time. And that actually put us in a really good position um, pre-COVID. They all have everything for a year tightening up um, to be able to prepare accidentally mm. for this what we've been going through. Gotcha. Now you mentioned early on that, you know, try to build a sense of community, right? So mm-hmm. when I sit down with clients, I'm very involved in their lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you find as a business owner, whether a brewery or other, is that you become attached to your local community. Oh, yeah. What does that mean to you guys having now Greenwood, Fishers, here downtown? 
What have you done to entrench yourselves in your local community, and, and how has the response been to uh, what you guys have been doing? It's been fantastic. You know, one of the things that I think, and, and, and our customers and guests can, can, can speak to this more than I can, one of the things that I, that I think that we have transferred really well is that we are the community gathering place that is similar to a Cheers environment. Mm. You walk in there, and, and you'll see it uh, any day at any of our places starting at about 4.30. Uh, you'll see people sitting at the bar, a few seats apart. They already know each other's names. They talk. They'll see you again tomorrow. And that kind of scenario is one of the things we set out to do and we're able to do that I think is one of our biggest successes. And and I wouldn't even say that we necessarily did as much as our guests actually did. Um, they came in with an open mind and said, um, I want something in the neighborhood that has great products, food and beer, and um, has a great service tag. We set out in 20, well, started all in 2012. There was already gaps in the service model, especially, it's actually across many, many different um, uh, industries, but it was apparent, becoming apparent in craft breweries and craft bars, there was, a, there was an arrogance that was mm. developing. And I, I, I put it akin to, to the wine world where people generally think snobbery about the wine world. That doesn't necessarily exist in most cases, but it's enough there that people assume that it's going to be there in their interactions. And the same thing was starting in beer. And that got me really nervous because I was like, if we're going to plateau and if craft beer is going to slow down, it's because we're not going to be constantly open to new consumers. Mm. not going to be willing to teach the person who's never had a craft beer before. And when we set out, we set out front of house with great beer and great service, great beer and great service over and over and over again. To the point where I still say it and, 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 and staff are interrupting me. Like, mm. We know the end of this, but it has to be hand in hand. And I would even say that as much as I want to be a brewer first and a brewery first, service is number one. And then if you can back that up with product, then you can actually build a, a meaningful relationship. And then from there, you can build that community that's at the bar weekly and, um, and, and hanging out, having a having a, uh, an IPA and a pretzel and having a great <laughs> afternoon. Fantastic. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see. And I get this, then my next question is, uh, I get a different answer and a response, right? And you've kind of alluded to in some of your answers already, but you had a background in media, as you, as you said. And so the simple question is, is, is owning a brewery different than you thought it would be? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> actually, um, we've already interviewed him. Uh, Dave Colt, yeah. I told him, I was like, uh, I was like, Hey, I've, I've got a business plan. We've got, uh, I've got a business partner and we've got funding for, uh, for starting this. And this was really early in stages. And again, I've, I've mentioned how helpful Sun King has been in many elements and Dave and Clay were, were awesome as I continued to just, uh, beat them with questions. Um, but, uh, he looked at me and they were already, so they opened in 2008, I think. Mm. Um, so this would have been. They would have already been in year four or five. And he looked at me and he goes, if you want to be a brewer, don't open a brewery. You're not a brewer anymore. You're a brewery owner. Your job is completely different. Mm. And I, <laughs> I said, uh, I, I didn't say this, but I walked away thinking, uh, I walked away thinking, you know, it's not going to be the case for me. I'm going to design things differently. I'm going to orchestrate everything so that uh, I am doing the brewing and I'm also able to run the operations. But it's all about I want to be a brewer. And it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. There's too no. many things that have to be done from a business side that not only did I learn I needed to do them, but I then had to learn how to do them. 
um, that was one of the biggest growth things that I did. And actually, one of the one of the reasons that um, my brewing learning actually stalled for a while because I was putting all my energy into learning how to just run a business, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, that uh, was was told to me. There's, I still <laughs> I still brew all of the beer out of Fisher's. So I'm hands-on at our Fisher's Pilot Brewery. Every bag that goes in, um, uh, I'm brewing it. I'm pitching the yeast. I'm, I'm filling the fermenter. I'm doing the sours here at our Delaware location. So I'm still very hands-on on the brewing side, but it maybe is 8% of my job. The rest of it is all, is the team happy? Are we able to execute daily um, with all the proper tools that we need? Are all of our vendor contracts where they need to be for us to be successful financially? That's basically what my job has become. Oh, and then, you know, what are we going to add to make things exciting again? <laughs> we just opened our new outside seating in Greenwood, um, and that was my project for the last three weeks. Mm. That three weeks to a month, well, on the actual execution side, planning before that, um, that, was, um, that was the big thing. What are we going to do next to improve the experience of Mashcraft? Because that's really what it comes down to. Gotcha. Now, as last year, let's just throw that out. I mean, when I, when I sit with clients or prospects for the first time, I just try to you know, come from a place of education, mm-hmm. guiding and counseling that, you know, there's just four challenges to creating wealth. You know, whether it's, you'd be surprised how many business owners and individuals I meet with where if I just get them organized, we're, we're 75% of the way there. Because I think just organization is is a challenge for most. But as it pertains to you in the brewery business, and especially trying to concoct, as, as you mentioned, you tried different styles that you were dead set on, but then you listen to your audience, right? Mm-hmm. What is the biggest challenge to creating a, a brew that you hope that your audience will like and come back and then it becomes maybe a staple and not a rotation? Um, well, just like anything that's um, ultra successful above the norm, there's a few key elements. Number one, can you, can you make it at a high level? There's a ton of beers that have been made at a high level that just yeah. didn't resonate. Mm-hmm. They came and they went. We've done a hundred of them probably. Um, the next thing is, can you put it in front of the market that it matters? Um, that's, Again, difficult. You know, we have at Mashcraft, we have three unique locations, we have three unique neighborhoods, and beers move differently at each location. It's mm-hmm. kind of weird, but it's fun to track and see things. The third element is, can you find magic? Anything that's uber successful uh, above the mean uh, is going to have that magical element to it. And that's the thing you just you can't predict. Yeah. Um, actually, a great example of that is the Blood Orange IPA that is our number one seller now. We built that beer in late 2016 and targeted it for tapping at our opening here. I was kicking myself the whole time. I was like, why in the world am I making a blood orange IPA in November going into Christmas season? I could be using that tap for any number of things. Damn if I wasn't the wrongest person in that entire equation. <laughs> I, that We put that beer on tap for opening day here, put it on tap at Greenwood, and within three days, it was number one here, number two at our three-year-old location. And I'm just sitting here going, we can't take it away now. And at that point, we hadn't added any house beers. Even yeah. if people clamored for our Hefeweizen, clamored for our Oktoberfest, I was like, no, we have three house beers. The numbers behind that beer, there was no stopping it from doing house beer. Um, and then the other one we've added is Jamaica Joe, um, which was more of a unique flavor profile that I thought, and one of my business partners thought, really added to the experience. You can walk in and consistently you have this mucho ultra flavored coffee beer with really, really cool elements that all sync together. And, and that one doesn't sell great, but man, when somebody has it or when one of our regulars is consistently coming in for it, 
it's a unique product that's generally not made in a whole lot of other places. So that's why it made the market. Gotcha. Now you're seeing a lot of groups that have just the breweries. You're seeing full scale restaurants. You're seeing brew pubs. Was the brew pub always an idea to go with the beer, or was that something that kind of, as you were flushing out the business plan, you wanted to have a food element? I'll be to honest it? with you. It depends. So if you go back to the very genesis. Um, the first idea of what Mashcraft was going to be was really, really similar to this location. Mm. Uh, similar neighborhood, similar setup as far as small food, small footprint, brew behind the bar kind of setup. That's what Mashcraft, when I go back to my first, second, third iterations of a business plan, was built around. And then, it's funny now, but we look back and we, you know, my, my first business partner, John, obviously still in the group. Um, but when, when him and I were talking through the business plan, he was coming from a finance perspective and, and we started talking about saturation um, around this area, which is comical now because of the number of breweries that are in this area. But <laughs> yeah. the, 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 yeah. the, the, the demographics, the, the data was different in 2012. It, it didn't look like you could support nine breweries on the east side of downtown Indianapolis. It didn't mm. look like you could do that. Um, so we, uh, we kind of changed our model and changed our structure and looked at the success that Sun King was having and, uh, said that we can do something similar. We can control our overhead by going, um, uh, by going labor friendly as far as doing hours that are peak hours for carry out and do it on a main thoroughfare in a neighborhood, but on a main thoroughfare on the South side. And so we opened in Greenwood with a very non-brew pub model. It was, mm. uh, we could do pints because we did have the minimum of food, which, which was kind of different than Sun King at the time. And Sun King's adapted since then. But, um, but we were very, we were all about the swing by, have a pint, pick up a growler, and head on home and have a great time. Um, and that was fine. And it really did a good job of getting our beer out there because people took growlers home and shared it with other people and new people came in and stuff like that. So that was a great start. But then when we got three years down the road and we were talking about this location, this was a very, very walkable neighborhood. And that's where the brew pub really started to click. Mm. Is you, could look at, um, you could look at people walking in, eating, drinking, walking back. And, and that combination of the neighborhood... Plus, when we talked to people from the neighborhood, what they were looking for it made a ton of sense. And then when we started designing the layout, started designing the menu, all that stuff, um, we learned a ton of things in implementation. They were able to feed forward into our third location and feed backwards into mm-hmm. now retrofitting Greenwood to be that brew pub model, which really people really enjoy. They want to sit down somewhere. They want to taste something that's made there on the food side. They want to taste your wares on the beer side. And they want to sit and they want to be part of a community. And we've now efficiently created that, in some cases, in a, in a backward style at all the three locations. And it, and it feels very organic because of it. As you guys design the menu, now that you're kind of expanding on this, this idea of the brew pub more, are you trying to build, a, you know, kind of selections that kind of compare well with your beers? Or is that just, hey, we just want great food? Well, the nice thing about beer is it pairs really well with food. Mm-hmm. Actually, um, the Brewers Association put a concerted effort in, like, must have been 2015, 2016. They really wanted to compete on the fine dining side against the fact that fine dining preferred wine. And wine doesn't necessarily go across food spectrums as well as beer does. And they mm-hmm. made that point consistently. Hi, Tim. <laughs> um, 
they made that point consistently in the fact that uh, they would tell restaurants that, you know what, there's hundreds of different styles of beer. And within there, there's dozens of ways to make those hundreds of styles. We can hit a food group may, way better than, than a red wine or white wine or, or, or even if you get into the smaller segments of port and stuff like that, that way better than wine can. And, um, and it, it, it never took, it never took. Wine just has an elevated, an <laughs> elevated mindset of uh, an elevated application. Um, but with that, we can really, and all of our three locations have completely different menus. They're mm. completely different. And we can still be able to, if you walk in, uh, I'll be able to tell you a great combination no matter what. Like right now, one of my favorites, we put on a New England IPA that we make consistently now called Squeeze the Juice. When I say consistently, about three times a year. Uh, it's called Squeeze the Juice. And man, if that thing doesn't go good with our salted pretzel, mm. you've got the big resin of the hops, you've got the density of the yeast that's still in solution, and then you've got this salty pretzel with beer cheese or spicy mustard, and it just goes. Um, so you got that, and then there's a couple garden pesto flatbread things that go great with our IPA. And you can make pairings really well because we have 16 different beers on tap, and we have multiple items on our menu. The pairings can come naturally and easily. Nice. Now, are you tinkering with any new blends that we can expect to come out near the fall? or As far as beer? Yeah. Man, we're always doing cool stuff. Um, so... New, we don't have we haven't projected far enough for the fall yet, uh, but when we look at summertime, uh, we've just added a new lager tank at our Greenwood mm. location. Uh, literally in the last two weeks, uh, that lager tank will be online in about ten to fourteen days, and with that, we're going to be able to make larger batches of really really cool lagers. Which, as I as I said earlier, uh, some people are interested <laughs> in and some aren't, but where we're going in craft beer, I I, I like it. Well. Not to mention, we're gonna make Oktoberfest with it, yeah, and that just goes. Um, so when you look at uh, when you look at that combined with being able to do our Kolsch in it, which generally sells really well, being able to do a German Pilsner in it, and, and some other different varieties, I think uh, I think that tank's gonna really serve its purpose. So that'll be some of the new fun developments. But outside of that, you know, we're transitioning heavily um, over the last year or two into some New England stuff as far as one to two taps. Gotcha. We're gonna consistently do that. We hadn't consistently done that before. And then um, and doing some some fruited sours and stuff like that out of our Delaware place here that really provides a cool little element that either goes great in your flight or or if you're a sour drinker you can you can generally find two different sours on tap from us too. Uh, outside of that, um, you know, I guess I can't take too much credit for planning too far ahead. I don't uh, I don't know what other cool stuff we're going to come up with, but maybe we'll think of it tomorrow. Fantastic. Now, are you guys trying to get distribution outside the pubs? Or are you just kind of keeping it? concentrated here for now yeah what's so, the idea behind that um we get, we consistently get these questions as far as um as far as drafting more places bottles and cans uh and even in some cases new locations we consistently get you know what are you guys going to do next the general setup of a brewery going back 20 years is you would open a brewery you would sell as much as you can through the front door everything else would go into a bottle and then it switched to everything else goes into a can. And then, you know, places like Sun King started and said, we're just going to can a lot and produce a lot of kegs and sell them. Um, and that model works for some people, but uh, every time you go into a vessel, that's another step later, uh, your margins shrink. Mm -hmm. And when we start talking about efficiency of uh, multiple aspects of, of what we're spending money on, every time we analyze going into a can or going into a bottle or, uh, expanding distribution, 
Um, you know, we're knocking on the door now of as much beer as we can produce. We start looking at doing any type of expansions. The ROI is just not there. You look at how what you're going to have to do uh, new tanks, what you're going to have to do glycol wise, stuff like that. Um, it uh, it becomes not very cost effective, especially if you're going to go into a can. If you're going to do a large expansion to go into a can, then you need to do a really large expansion to go into a lot of cans. Gotcha. Uh, and that's just that's not our makeup. Uh, what I see going forward for us is we're going to continue to fine tune the experience of Mashcraft. When you come here, have a great time, be treated really well, uh, and um, and then from there, that uh, that will provide us with what we're trying to grow as far as Mashcraft goes. Is is this sitting in these chairs kind of situation? Fantastic. Well. I'll give you a last question, and this is something I ask everybody I meet with for the first time. It's if we were to sit down, and I use it from an advising perspective, where if I sit with a client for the first time, I said, if we were to sit down three years from now, what would need to transpire both financially, professionally, even emotionally, that we can look back on and say our time spent together was valuable? So as you sit here as a brewer, as an owner, if we were to sit down for another podcast three years from now, Andrew, what do you see moving forward for Mashcraft that we could look back and say, hey, we're, we're on the right track and on the path to, to get um, where we want to be? Well, uh, there's two main factors to determine anyone's success. Number one, are the products you're putting out making your customers happy? If we're consistently doing that from five years, well, seven years ago, we're about to do our seventh anniversary in Greenwood, from seven years ago through the next five years, and onward, I'm very happy. Number two, um, are the people that work on your team happy? And that's gonna be the determining factor for whether we can continue to fine tune and then also grow and also just generally have a great community feel for this place. Is everybody who's in these walls each day happy? And I think that we are well on our way to both results. Um, when we meet again in three years, I'll tell you if I was right or not. <laughs> well, that's a perfect way to end it, my man. All right, Andrew, Andrew Kastner, Mashcraft. Come see him down in Greenwood here at the Delaware location in downtown Indianapolis or up on the north side in Fishers, man. Thank you, my man. Hey, Cheers. Geez. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Appreciate Absolutely. It. Now I can do it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. For the latest on Financial Views with Local Brews, please check out our website at financialviewswithlocalbrews.com. You can also find us on YouTube via our channel there under the same name, Financial Views with Local Brews, as well as follow us on all of our social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, where you can like and connect with us throughout the craft beer universe that we're trying to explore here in the great state of Indiana. As always, cheers. The next round's on me, and I look forward to seeing you for future episodes. Bye, everyone.